Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, no matter where you're listening, around the world, this is Sedona Talk Radio. Hello, hello everyone out there in the big wide world. This is again Helena Steiner Hornstein speaking to you. I am back in Miami, as you know, and I'm going to stay here for a little while, although I would make trips. I would go to New York this coming weekend, and the weekend after that I would be in Cleveland, Ohio. Anyway, uh, we have a new name. The name is Our Wondrous World, and today I have a very special guest. His name is Stephen Parkhill. He's written a book, Answer Cancer, the Healing of a Nation. And, um, Stephen, I know you are already on the other side of the line. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I would just like to read what I see on the back of the book first. And there it says, is there a cure for cancer? The medical profession has been looking for one for decades, concentrating mainly on how the body produces these deadly cells. Only recently, a handful of doctors have studied the power of the mind in healing. Though they have met with some success, they have yet to ask the next logical question. Is it possible that cancer is actually produced by the mind? If so, can the mind be used not just to heal cancer, cancer but to prevent it in the first place? And before you answer this, because this is what the show is going to be about today, I would like, Stephen, to just introduce yourself and tell me about your own journey, how you came to do what you do. I have introduced you on the Internet as a healer. Thank you so much. No problem. And it, it is a fascinating journey because it was not my intention. And uh, I, I tripped over hypnosis when I was actually managing health clubs and was uh, introduced to it as a tool for sales improvement, helping a salesman focus, gain confidence, um, better organized thought in the selling process. And it did incredibly well with, uh, for that. And because what versus selling cars or insurance or any other such thing, because I was running health clubs at the time, there was a natural spinoff in not only using it for my own staff, but then it branched off into working with some of the members for weight loss. And because it was out in San Jose, there was a lot of professional athletes in the area who were coming to our clubs. I started use it, using it to help athletes uh, professionally tune their minds for better focus and uh, you know greater activity. Mm-hmm. And as as that whole situation in my life wound down and I moved to the Fort Lauderdale area of Florida, there was just this huge resource of stockbrokers up and down the Gold Coast, and I started doing private consulting, same thing, for the sales improvement with the stockbrokers. And this goes back to the early 80s and the whole Miami Vice thing. Uh, Cocaine was no longer an evil drug at the time. It was pretty in vogue socially. And as I was doing the sales improvement with these stockbrokers, I started getting cards and flowers and thank yous from uh, spouses who were saying, you know, my husband didn't tell you, but he's been viciously addicted to cocaine for some time now, and it was destroying our marriage, and and I think it's a reason why his business was failing. And since he's been working with you, he hasn't touched the stuff, and I've got my husband back. Thank you so much. That's interesting. It it was fascinating to me. You know, my, my thought was, you know, the rhetoric in the street is all about how tough addiction is to heal, particularly cocaine addiction. And my first thought was, geez, I'm healing this stuff without even trying. What if I tried? And I just naturally slipped into using my hypnosis for addiction work. And as the words, my, the word of my effectiveness spread throughout that community, the more uh, strongly addicted personality started showing up with the uh, longer habits, and when you get into the heavier levels of addiction over longer periods of time, those folks showed up with a host of chronic illnesses. And 
as I would do the addiction work, the chronic illnesses were going away. And I thought, once again, you know, this stuff we know is hard to heal. That's why the doctors have labeled it chronic, meaning their stuff isn't working against it. And here I am healing it without even trying, so I thought the same thought. What if I tried? Yeah. And I started working through the, the chronic illness. And then I, uh, I, I love doing radio, and I did have my own show. I was South Florida's mind coach for a couple years in the early 90s. And with that show, just as you've probably experienced, you, you touch hearts and souls who always swear, you know, I never turn on the radio, I'm never in the car that time of day, I, I never yeah. listen to AM, but for some reason I did tuned in and there you were. And, you know, it's, it's obviously serendipitous. It was beyond yeah. coincidence so, how those people... So this way you came into chronic illness. Exactly, just literally off of the addiction work. And as I started... Uh, voicing my philosophies over the air, I got what I, you know, was was probably one of the most changing phone calls in my life. It was an MD, a surgeon, who uh, was in an advanced state, uh, had an advanced state of leukemia, and he actually called me for pain control, pain management, and I said, well, I don't do that, but I've gotten some other pretty vicious ills healed, and if you would like to apply that technique and, and technology to what you're suffering, uh, A, the pain should go away anyhow, and uh, uh, B, we, you know, we might see an effect on the cancer. So he came into my office, and I am a hypnotist by base discipline, and I think I can pretty confidently say all my work is regression hypnosis, uh, which is a specific brand using, uh, instead of just putting a person in trance and giving them suggestions of positiveness or healing or some such. It's literally climbing into the core of a person's soul. And yeah, I was just going to ask you, how do sure. you do regressions? Yeah, <laughs> and that, you so, you know, we'll get into that, that in more detail. The reason I yeah. bring it up at, uh, without the explanation first was, here's an MD, a very well-credentialed surgeon in my chair, and the way I do my work is put a person in hypnosis, amplify the, the pain or the ache or lump or bump they're looking to get healed, and uh, ask the subconscious goal-achieving mind to take me to the key events of significance uh, to that illness within the person's past. And I watched a very left-brain, intellectual, uh, well-credentialed MD curl up into a fetal position and regress all the way back into the womb. And I'm not saying it was an instantaneous understanding of what I was looking at, but we eventually uh, figured out together as a team that I literally watched this man, not remember, but relive an attempted abortion. Wow. Uh, as wow. he's in the womb, and his, this goes back into the, I guess it would be about the late 40s, mid-40s, and there were no abortion clinics. It was not legal at that time, so there were yeah. street techniques used to try to thwart a potential pregnancy, and one of those was to take any kind of caustic kitchen cleanser um, and uh, you know, charge it with some kind of fizz and squirted up the woman's vagina to kill off the sperm or fetus. And this man curls up into the fetal position, and to this day I I can't do the math relating to just physics, meaning, you know, you can get more water through a fire hose than you can a drinking straw. And to try to equate the amount of fluid that was pouring out of this man's body from every orifice, and then figure how big are the tear glands, how big are the you know, wow. sweat ducts and so forth. But it, evidently he must have survived this abortion attempt, absolutely. didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And the, the core program running was the most important people in the world. Mom and Dad would rather see me dead. And here was a, a person who chose the medical profession. You might look back, he, you know, we had this conversation. He says, I never saw it this way, but I think I chose my profession looking for my own answers. Yeah. Uh, he suffered a life of lesser chronic ills, and, and at 50-some years old, the leukemia hit was quite advanced. His white cell counts were skyrocketing uh, upwards over 500,000 when we first met. And I did my work, which you know you and I can discuss in more detail, and within, I think it was seven or eight days, he had some new blood work done, and his white cell counts were down around 17,000 from over 500,000. Wow. And a couple more sessions later, they continued to drop, and found themselves in normal ranges. And when I wrote the book, I didn't have a title or a real direction. The publisher heard my radio show. He was actually a listener on his way to and his work. 
and uh, asked me if I had a book in me. And so, I, you know, I didn't have a manuscript. I didn't have a plan. And uh, so I was fishing for a concept, and I had thought of a couple case studies that were quite significant and, and alarming yeah. what they the, the story they told and I thought you know this this is an amazing thing watching this cancer heal for this doctor and that prompted the title of the book answer cancer it was the angle I took as I wrote it and funny enough you know a year to write the book then I have to get sign-offs on all the case studies in the book and I couldn't find the doctor and I thought you know if this guy died you know what if there was a recurrence yeah. <laughs> and this man's past was sort of blow the wind out of my sails and he called me he was down on the pacific Islands sipping on a, a sweet drink at the time <laughs> was totally happy to sign off on the story and was thrilled yeah. to tell me how great he was doing a year and a half later and uh had, had retired from medicine and and decided yeah. he was going to live his life in peace for the first time that his subconscious mind would allow it it must have been hard for him, though, to being an, an MD and uh, to accept this sort of healing method because this is what it was. Well, I, going I back it, into your subconscious or what it was. I agree, and I, I think um, I think his initial willingness fell under the banner of ignorance is bliss. I didn't uh, overstress the process or the idea of healing. I, he wanted pain management, so I said, well, I'm not going to give you any masking suggestions, but let's see if we can use the hypnosis and regression to get to the root of the pain. So I didn't talk about the disease. I talked about getting to the root of the pain, and uh, that sort of left the, the, you know, the red flags uh, out of the sky and kept green flags in the sky for his thought process at the time. And then, of course, the the idea that we had uncovered an attempted abortion on the part of his mother and father, uh, that was a pretty bizarre thing to, in quotes, think we had witnessed. And yeah. his mother, God bless her, was in her 80s, still alive and vital. And the next most shocking moment in our uh, professional relationship was when he called his mom and started probing her with some rather delicate questions. She quickly figured out where he was going and went into hysterics herself, saying, "How how can you know this? Nobody knows this. This has my been my secret for all these years." Yeah. So we, you know, he had to do his own brand of um, therapy and consoling of her soul when, uh, you know, 53 years later, the, this came out of the blue, and and he didn't realize exactly what he was hitting her with, and we didn't know the nature of the abortion attempt. Uh, it, it, she was the one who told him, and, and then, of course, he passed on to me. Uh, she was the one that told him the details of how they tried to accomplish it. And that's where we yeah. learned about the kitchen cleanser thing that was put oh. in the vagina. Oh, wow. So we had, yeah. never under, we had never discovered that particular detail. That was something she disclosed once, oh. he, once he confronted her. This is so fascinating, and it really gives you some kind of... Uh, thought uh, about abortions also, you know, because we have thought, oh, no one knows anything, and the fetus is just the fetus, and it doesn't know about anything. Yeah, and it, it opens up a whole, you know, a, a number of uh, cans of worms. When I, I notice, I haven't caught it for a while, but I, I basically hide from the political planet these days. I'm not as yeah. as I used to be, but. You know, in the days that I kept my finger on the pulse of, of the politics of culture, we'll call it, and where the thought fads were going uh, throughout my career, I would notice that almost like clockwork every six months, there would be some article either in some Main Street medium or uh, a journal of some, a professional journal of some sort, uh, identifying a consistent statistical link between breast cancer um, and abortion, and of course the doctors go rooting around a person's body looking for a gene uh, to make that connection or to yeah. better understand the statistic. And, you know, my work, and, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to get to the whole concept of thought-cause alignments, uh, says that the breasts are the nurturing center, and no matter how liberal a woman might be on the outside with an abortion, uh, there's a, a deeper feeling that runs below the conscious level assessments of life that says, I've just killed something I was supposed to nurture. Yeah, and I know. 
so when we get into these thought cause alignments, and some of them have to be better explained, but when you say that the breasts are the nurturing center, you know, that's not that much of a stretch. That's pretty easy to understand just on face value. And so when we start talking about the deeper concepts that say the brain is just a transistor, the mind is stored throughout the entire body, and emotions fester in certain areas of the being, it's not a stretch to understand then why breast cancer and abortion statistically link. And, and you know, that doesn't, I'm not a moralist. I, I'm not against a, abortion. Uh, you know, I believe in soul continuum, and I believe that old souls come into ex human existence uh, for short periods of time just to help the, the lesser and younger souls learn a lesson, and they, they check out. I believe that, too. In my work, I've seen exactly that happen. Yeah. So and, uh, uh, I'm okay with abortion. In fact, I tell people, you know, I'd rather see an abortion if you've talked about it for nine months than out of laziness have the child after all that programming has been put into that child's early developing mind in the womb. Yeah, because um, the child is aware of that programming, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's the root cause. of You know, it basically becomes the first sensitizing event of the human coming into life. And everything else is built upon and based upon that, or and we can say soured by it. If the yeah. rest of life is positive, and the, you know, a, a child shows chronic illness throughout all their developing years, and it only gets worse into an adulthood, and then that person comes into my office. You know, in the book I make the statement: all the damage or good is done between conception and four. And I usually have to repeat that. People, I say the word conception, and people hear the word birth. And it's yeah. not birth in four, it's conception in four years old. It's so true. And I know in, the, in Europe, in the old days when I grew up, I know women who were pregnant, they did everything so they would be happy. They went to exactly. the theater, they went to the opera, they would listen to beautiful music, they would make, it, make sure they were happy to have a beautiful and healthy child. Exactly. And that's, you know, that gets into the, frust into the social frustrations I have. I, I always point out that, as a, as a culture, a society, we as humans seem to have gotten stupider over time. And you'd hope yeah, we, we forget nature, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we do. You know, the, the older countries and the older traditions respect the things that today people just pee on. And it's shameful. It's sad that it happens that way. But Well, it happens because we get to have new gods like technology mm -hmm. and money and in a larger extent also. But actually, so cancer can begin even as early as in the womb. That's Absolutely. what you're saying. Absolutely. It's so I interesting. Had, I, I, uh, for obvious reasons, I couldn't um, put an exact finger on how far back close to conception I have had a regression take me where there is obviously a personality developing, a life force, memory accumulating. Uh, the, the closest true mechanical meter or measure of that I can go by was one case study, woman born in the early 50s. And in the regression, uh, she was, found herself fascinated with a particular room that her mind was providing her the image of specifically a fireplace, a mantle, yeah. uh, a very specific knickknack, and the position of the Christmas tree next to the fireplace, and an ornament she was particularly fascinated by. And uh, after the session, she talked to her mother, and once again, that might, I, I always feel incredibly bad for the uh, uh, close relatives of the people that I put in my chair because they're the ones that get hit with the shock of this you know, unrecoverable data or supposedly unrecoverable data because this woman went back to her mom and was just fascinated uh, with the idea of telling her about this room that she had visited in the regression and um, the things that she found herself interested in uh, in, the, in that moment of the regression as she was in this room and the mother freaks out. The mother says you can't know those things. We we didn't, you know, cameras were a luxury back then, and this family didn't have one. Yeah. She says, we have no picture recordings or memories uh, of that room. We moved from that house when I was three months pregnant. 
you can't oh, know really? where that, you can't know where that Christmas tree is. You can't know about that fireplace mantle. Yeah. And of course, she had exquisite detail. Um, so, so you mean you saw through the eyes that, of the uh, mother? That's the only thing I can guess. And once again, I'm I'm proud to you know tell the world when I'm clear in, in my understanding of things and. I'm equally proud to say I don't get it myself. I can only be hypothetical with you. Uh, yeah. And that's the best guess uh, I can come up with, that the, the fetus in the womb literally does have some kind of connection uh, to the mother's senses. Uh, well, you know, you eat for the child, you drink for the child, and maybe you also speak and, and uh, you feel for the child and you see for the child, you know. Yeah, and You're just one. God bless technology. You know, it's it's invisible signals that come through the air and get sent through a cable box that give us an image on the TV. So yeah. when you think about how we've mastered technology to move images through, you know, time and space and uh, the electrical impulse. Then all of a sudden, it becomes understandable and explainable how images brought in through a mother's eyes, because we know that information is being. Uh, converted to electrical impulses, it's taken to the brain and distributed throughout the. You know that could also be very dangerous, almost for a mother to watch bad things on television or in well, films. Well, it's horrible, uh, and I re- recommend against it. And I always explain. I say, look, I might be the one hypnotist you've commissioned to work in your behalf, but please don't be so naive to think I'm the only hypnotist who's employed to affect your brain. It's just all the others yeah. are employed by Madison Avenue to turn you empty inside and make you compulsively consume. Uh, but I'm the only, I'm just the hypnotist that's working in your behalf. The others are working against your family's interests, against your peace of mind, against the fullness in your belly. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, but the was just are brutal. Yeah, I was just trying to think maybe a fetus is aware of dangerous things around it uh, and hearing things that influences the mother very much, maybe just once, and then the fetus will digest this. And then when it's born, that's why the babies or small, small children come down with cancer. It's just my sudden <laughs> impulsive well, uh, uh, comment. You're, you're spot on. Um, you know, in my work, we... As as hypnotists that follow the Dave Elman brand of hypnotherapy, there's something we call an ISE, which is just an acronym for initial sensitizing event, and then SSEs, subsequent sensitizing events. And the nature of disease is how these things pile one atop themselves once a trend is started. And you know, other disciplines of of thought and philosophy use different words and different examples and different metaphors, but we're all saying the same thing. The book of Genesis, the Course in Miracles, talks about the moment of separation from God, and that could be likened to the initial sensitizing event to me as a hypnotist. It says the soul takes a physical form and and comes in with God's bliss and peace, no education, uh, just a general feeling of, of bliss, and then they get that first pie in the face that says life's not, so, not such a bowl of cherries down here. And, you know, so whether I call it an initial sensitizing event or a Course in Miracles person talks about the moment of separation from God, and, of course, the book of Genesis has similar notations that say the same thing, Uh, you know, it's, you know, all the temples pointing to the sky. You know, everybody's saying the same thing just in their own language. So there is is a ton of mutual understanding and appreciation there, even if, you know, parties of the different factions want to argue here and there, they're... Their, their base beliefs are the same. It's, it's just style points and how one delivers the message. Yeah. I have noticed that when people have come to me, sometimes they don't even have to sit down until I really see what they, what, where they have a problem, mm-hmm. and that's in a, in a past lifetime. And I remember just a second, there was one woman who sat down and I said, said to her before she even said why she had come to see me, I said, I see that yellow house that is really bothering you. And she broke out in tears and started to almost scream. And she said, I felt that yellow house in me all my life. And then I saw, yes, she lived in that yellow house and she died from pneumonia and 
she she left the family behind with children and everything else, and she felt all this particular life now she felt guilt, and she couldn't understand why she had that guilt. She felt guilt about everything. So guilty she couldn't even have children in this lifetime, and that was the cause for that. Exactly, and, you know, the, the, the whole the past life thing is just, you know, I, I said something earlier that now we get into the deeper conversation, which is what happens when a soul comes into this life and before this life hits them in the face with a pie, they come in with some feeling of foreboding, what's that about? And if, that gets exactly into the whole past life thing. And and I'm more of a skeptic than a proponent of it. Uh, and it's not that I don't believe in past lives. It's that I believe in man's ability to over-franchise anything for the dollar. Yeah. And there, because the subconscious mind is, A, lazy for change, and... Um, then B, it holds our creative capacity. Um, anybody romanced with the concept of a past life regression and then coming into my office, um, well, you know, and particularly if somebody is a past life regression therapist, so you know that becomes the intention throughout the entire deliberation. Yeah, uh, I've learned in my office that a, a, high, a greater percentage of the cases are what I would call fantasy conjurings for the sake of escape, meaning you give a person a choice of dealing with the real sticky stuff of this life or the idea of a past life, particularly the way it's been romanticized. Uh, the subconscious mind's going to look at the two options and take an old, old Earl Flynn movie and an eighth grade history lesson and have the person back in some grassy field of Europe. Uh, and the neat thing is, even if it is a creative conjuring, if, if it has metaphorical therapeutic value, it can be profound in a person's healing. Uh, I've always, in, in my own professional career, thought it was my obligation um, to put up covert litmus tests so that if it is a fantasy escape, a uh, conjuring to avoid the real issues of this life, it's sort of my job to snap the person out of, out of it without playing God, without saying, hey, I don't think this is where you need to go. I don't have the right to do that in a regression. But I found ways to break a person's mind out of that escape mechanism and get them back into the real issues of this existence. And then the most amazing thing is when the person sort of passes through all those filters and even I as, as the skeptic have to back up in my chair and go, this thing looks real. This, this, yeah. this looks like it's downright documentable. And those past lives, and, and you know, indicative of the one, like the one you shared, Sometimes it's so profound, and it comes out so effortlessly. My mind says, and the one one of the ways I smell the rat when it comes to, you know, is this a real past life regression or is this a creative conjuring for escape? Um, when it's a lie, when it's a conjuring, you literally watch underneath their eyelids. The subject's eyes go up and away as they have to literally create the story for you. And then other past life regressions, there, there's no time for creation. Uh, this is just spontaneously coming out of the person of, as a report of what's bubbling up. And That's interesting. How, how, how the eyes supposed to, to be if you're telling an actual true story? Yeah, if you're telling the true story, there's no time required for conjuring. Okay. You know, it's just right there. And, and yeah, that does. The way you mm -hmm. shared, you know, shared that case study that you just did. Yeah. You know, if you just just to listen to the way you tell the story, there's there's no room for conjuring. There's no, no. time for it. It just yeah. it all blurted out that spontaneously. So yeah. that's one of the one of the ways I actually can tell the difference is the mind pausing to take the time to conjure the story, uh, or is it just literally blurting out of the person to everyone's surprise? You know, even yeah, people, and that's people, very interesting. A very simple explanation and observation on your behalf, I think. Very, very good. Yeah, it's uh, And it's like that with everything, too. You know, uh -huh. what's spontaneous is usually just the truth, like from a child. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I think um, the child's lie, children lie pretty well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, children, I feel uh, a question from a child is the hardest one to answer because it's really right to the point. Right. And, I, you know, if, if we can, there, there was something, you know, we talked about when we were on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and I, I wanted to get into the discussion if we could, because I, I think it's so fascinating, and it gets back into how society has literally dumbed down over the ages instead of become more enlightened. And it's the idea of these, uh, uh, the 
the specifics of the mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. And this is what's so fascinating in, in my work where I'm using hypnosis, a word science, to heal physical ills. And it's the idea that the mind is, is not the brain and the brain is not the mind. Uh, the brain is a transistor, and the concept that works so well in my office says that the mind is stored throughout the entire body. And when I first got into this work in the early 80s, something had just happened. And, you know, I don't know if there was anybody else promoting it the way I was, but I, I you know, have been sort of known as the tip of the spear on this whole concept of that a cancer is not a bug flying around, you know, like a, an arch-villain with a cape and looking down on the population and zooming in on one person like I pick you. Um, yeah. Which is almost, you know, closer to how the doctors um uh, and treat it. You know, there, there's no rhyme or reason why it takes on this person and not that person, other than when they blame it on the genes, uh, which is just the more you get into it, the more silly that becomes. Um, but it's the idea that a cancer is not the mind-body connection running amok or the body falling apart randomly. It's the idea that the subconscious mind is programmed for some kind of self-mutilation or self-limitation, and the disease, whether we're talking cancer or any other chronic ill. Uh, the disease is just the tool that the subconscious mind is using to get that self-mutilation or self-limitation accomplished. And the, the uh, when you springboard off of that and realize that the, the brain is a transistor, this is a concept that, you know, today neuroscientists still are digging around the brain looking for memory. And as these thought-cause alignments, this mind-body connection thing, was being promoted through alternative channels in the late 70s, throughout the 70s, the doctors just roasted these people as absolutely absurd buffoons. And then something amazing happened. Doctors started transplanting organs. And as quick as the doctors started transplanting organs, they themselves started journaling the stories of the donor's memories, the donor's personality, the donor's likes and dislikes right down to specific foods came along with the organs. Yes, I've seen that with people also when I looked into them. And mm-hmm. when and organs all have personalities and uh, they talk to me Absolutely. and say what they like and don't like. And when you have a transplant, I see that, you know, if I'm not told that people have had a transplant, I wonder what's wrong here. You know, somehow they have a war within you. That's interesting. Yeah. That is so, see, you know, we have, you know, we are literally, um, uh, how you do your work, which I'm learning as we speak, and how I do my work, it's that old line, there's different paths to Rome. So I'm hearing your angle of discovery applied to my mind mechanics that I know and rely on, and it's just fascinating to hear, you know, the way your discovery happens in these things. Yeah. It's just I'm sitting here, um, you know, feeling a great student myself, just listening to the way you're describing these things. Um, and well, I'm self-taught, so to speak. Everything I do is channeled, and you have learned the hard way through books and okay. through going to to school to to learn what you know and then through your own ability which of course you have added to this and I see you have great abilities Stephen uh, that is out of the book I mean uh, beyond the book (laughs) way beyond the book one thing to remember that thing was written in 1995 and you know obviously I've grown as a soul and a professional uh, in the 13 whatever it's been almost 14 years now to follow and uh, it's been a fascinating journey on these you know, getting back to the organ thing, uh, this is one of the favorite things I love to point out. Uh, you know, straight from Valentine's Day and that cute little thing we call a heart that everybody knows and is on every plastered on every card and uh, on every refrigerator at you know, every, every loving moment, the idea that the heart and love are synonymous is really comical when you just step back forensically and look at a heart. It is. You take one out of a cadaver, it is one ugly old piece of equipment. I mean, that is one nasty, gnarly, bloody-looking chunk of flesh-colored muscle, reddish muscle. Yeah, it is. And there, there is nothing pretty about it. There is nothing romantic about it. 
But when you see how it's been glorified and glamorized uh, around the concept of love, it's the first clue that, I don't know how many centuries ago, I'm not a historian to know when this stuff uh, first surfaced and then started to progressively disappear. But somewhere back when, people understood that the heart was the love center. You couldn't look at that piece of equipment in its flesh form and go, yeah, that's where romance lies right there. <laughs> <It's just laughs> not, it ain't going to happen. Nobody's going to make that jump for the first time. Yeah. But somewhere along the line, we learned that the heart was the love center. Put a heart on a table right next to a kidney, right next to a liver, right next to a stomach. It doesn't have a competitive edge on pretty looks. It's not, none of them are going to inspire It doesn't any. feel none of the organs uh, yeah, look good because, ugly. you know, I see them. When I look at people, I look into them, and then the organs look very pretty. They look mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah, have different but shapes. But that's in my eyes because I work out of love, so to speak. Sure. But once in the physical body, these organs are ugly. Absolutely. So, you know, why do we say pissed off and not elbowed off or healed off uh, or muscled off? You know, why do we talk a pain in the butt, a pain in the neck, uh, hard-hearted, heartbroken? Can you give it good explanations to that, why we say Well, yes, these slangs are proof that way back when we understood that certain emotions tend to accumulate in specific organs and body parts. So when you get into the thought-cause alignment, you know, Louise Hay is you know, just a, a, a wonderful human being. A, uh, her original book, Heal Your Body, had, had, was basically, it was only seven pages of story. Or, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that, about seven pages mm-hmm. of story. The whole remain, remainder of the book were these alignments between emotions and body parts. And it's a fascinating thing to just, you know, browse and study these connections. But it's the idea somewhere back when, as I mentioned, you know, the idea of the breast being the, uh, a nurturing center, that's not a stretch. We can pretty much understand that. But the idea that the kidneys and the colon uh, hold angers, uh, that the liver, liver holds what I've characterized a little bit deeper than her things, uh, primal anger, just the deepest rooted loathing uh, so far below the conscious level of uh, comprehension or understanding. Uh, you know, the, all the idea of the pancreas and where insulin comes from and what a diabetic really is and, you know, what it is when their sugars go high or low. And uh, then you start to see the personalities of the folks and how love-starved they are or how overcompensating they are with their love. It no longer becomes a, a stretch to... Understand, to believe in these thought-cause alignments. And when I have a person that's, uh, that's uh, experiencing some form of kidney disease or kidney failure, my regressions are non-directive. I always say that my work, because I'm so dedicated to keeping my regressions non-directive, and when I say that, I mean I don't lead. I don't, well, let's see, I've got kidney failure, so I know that's an anger center. All right, as I count from 10 to 1, you're going to go back in time to a point in your life when, you were really pissed at somebody who you swore you wanted to love. Uh, that's a that's a guided regression a le- with a bunch of leading questions, and the yeah. facilitator is playing God at that point, and I loathe that kind of uh, uh, behavior on the part of the professional. My dedication and how I do my work is once in trance, I literally create an ab reaction. Whatever the pain or the problem the person is coming to see me for, I will amplify that ache, pain, lump, or bump through suggestion, uh, exacerbate it a little, the condition a little bit. And by doing so, I've given this goal-achieving subconscious mind a target. I've said, hey, sub, of all the things going on within this person, uh, this is the thing we're here to get to the root of. This is what we're focused on. And then I ask it to take me back to the first event or the key events of significance to that, situ- to that feeling. And at that point, as I do my regression, I'm flying blind. I'm holding on to the reins of the horse with a blindfold over my eyes, and I don't know if it, that horse is going to take me back to 12 years old, 12 months old, two months uh-huh. after conception, or 200 A.D. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's against my professional discipline 
to think I know where that person's mind needs to take us. So I'll do a number a down count for my regressions and uh, pretty standard technique. And at the count of one, I have to ask questions so that I can paint into my mind what the client has now found themselves reliving. And it's at that point that I get my education. It's at that point that I become a little more savvy to what's going on in this person's psyche. And, you know, I, I always say that because of my dedication to making sure my regressions are non-directed, if Louise Hayes thought cause alignments were ill-advised and, and uh, off-base in any way, it would be my work that would shoot hers out of the sky like a skeet. And I can tell you, 25 years later, <laughs> since I've been doing this stuff, I've never seen those thought cause alignments in her book miss the mark. They oh, are spooky. That's very interesting, yeah. Spooky accurate. And, yeah. um, you know, so then to see that, you know, and this is how I got into healing. I was a refrigeration mechanic. And from the time I was 13 to 21, I had these recurring bouts of bursitis. And bursitis is known more as an old person's disease. I was 13 years old and uh, had little bouts of it. They didn't know what it was going back as far as nine. And when I finally I got into the hypnosis out of, you know, like I said, for sales improvement and sports improvement, it was two and a half years in, into my professional dabbling with hypnosis uh, before I found out, you know, started to see a connection where it could have healing power. And that was particularly through the work with phobias. I was, I was doing work with a couple of phobic cases. And there's a very specific philosophy on uh, using regression on how to eliminate a phobia way more quickly than any other technology out there. And I started, you know, just becoming more and more fascinated with the healing. I was still in the psychological sense of healing, uh, you know, behavioral problems and emotions and depression and so forth. But I tripped over these thought cause alignments of Louise Hay. Yeah. And I thought, man, you know, I'm I'm still wrestling this bursitis stuff, and it's how the doctors the doctors tried to kill me. I ended up in a coma from them triple dosing. Really? How well, you got medication or what was it? Yeah, they trapped me yeah. in a hospital. I mean, I had yeah. to escape from a hospital like a Dukes of Hazard episode. Wow. Uh, to, because the doctors didn't want a second opinion. This is in 1980, so this the word yeah. malpractice didn't exist mm -hmm. back then. Uh, so the doctors were just trying to cover up their bad tracks and wouldn't let me out of the hospital until I got better and I wasn't getting better. So I had a friend and a chiropractor and the nurse on the floor helped me escape from the hospital. Really? Uh, this is that's, incredible. That's, yeah. And this was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, was no, it? No, that was in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, where I grew oh. up. And that's how I Oh, I see. Yeah, I came. I escaped from that hospital in 13 days. You know, I had my own epiphany and, an epiphany and said, I got to go. I got to. Uh, you know, basically, you could you know, steal some. Yeah. So, for how long had you been in the hospital at the time? Three and a half months and 287 needles of originally Demerol Vistaril cocktails going to yeah. morphine mainline down the top of my thigh when they had so many holes in my butt they were afraid a clot would break loose. This is terrible, there. terrible to have yeah. to su survive this kind of thing. Well, it rocked my world. It turned me from a refrigeration yeah. mechanic to healer. Not not immediately, yeah. but it sent me on a search for meaning. And, yeah. you know, so when I saw these thought cause alignments, I thought back to my own bursitis, and I thought, man, i got to check this out. And the exact words, I, I think I can recite them verbatim from Louise Hay's book without looking at it, was uh, repressed anger, hidden desire to strike someone. And the chills went down my spine when I read that because all my years growing up, my as wonderful a human being as my mom was, my dad was proportionately an idiot on the other side of the spectrum, and he had a, a unique little twist to his abuse. He was a cop, and he would come home drunk after his shift, oh. and he'd just start wailing on me. And every time he'd hit me in this slurred, drunken voice, he'd say, "Come on, you little," and I'll, I'll save the superlatives for the you know, from the listeners. But he was "Come yeah. on, you little creep." You know, I know you want to hit me. Well, I didn't want to hit him. I wanted the dad to go play baseball or something. Yeah. And so he'd pop me across the side of the face and say the same stupid line. And after about five or six punches across the face, you know, I thought, "Well, if he wants me to hit him. I'll hit him." So one more time, I hear, "Come on, you little punk. I know you want to hit me." And I'd cock my fist, and he'd stick his finger in my face and say, "You." T and all of a sudden his voice would sober up. That was the freakiest part. 
His voice would sober up, and he'd say, you touch me, and I'll have you in monkey hall so quick it'll make your head spin. And that was cop slang from Montgomery County Juvenile Detention Center. Wow. You know, our culture's changed. Uh, yeah. Today, if a, a parent spanks the child out of a, a you know, a, a sensible use of corporal punishment, they get investigated by HRS. Um, and in those and days... And at that time, it was probably just, um, and particularly opposite. since he was a policeman. Yeah. Yeah, parents yeah. you know could wail the crap out of their child and then say this kid's unruly and and have him put in juvenile detention center. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he would incite this artificial rage, and then use that fear statement to trap it back inside me. And a ten-year-old kid gets bursitis. Yeah. Oh, so, so that's how it started. Yeah. So when yeah. I saw that, uh, my mentor at the time turned partner. Uh, you know, I said, Jerry, dude, you got to put me in the chair. We we got to see if we can nail this bursitis thing. It was one yeah, but did you, I've never had Did you remember back. that uh, this could be the case? I mean, after well, yeah, you left the, home, you wouldn't have remembered that this was probably... No, that, that, you know, rep, uh, repression is not always, is certainly not at all necessary in order to have a past affect, you know, your physical condition as an adult yeah. or present. So, yeah, before I ever thought about sitting in the chair or experiencing a regression... Uh, I yes, I immediately connected the dots. When I read uh, uh, repressed anger, hidden desire to strike someone, uh, or repressed desire to strike someone, uh, my mind immediately flashed back to all those episodes with him pinning me up against the wall, yeah. uh, beating on me, and then using that same fear statement to stuff it back inside myself. Mm-hmm. And so I knew instantly yeah. you know, what was going on for myself. And you know, like I said, my partner put me in the chair and. It was a very brief 45-minute session later. Yeah. That's, that's the last time I've ever experienced a bursitis. So anyone with bursitis out there, this could be one of the reasons of suppressed uh, anger that they have been walking around with. But before, you know, time flies here, Stephen, and uh, I see yeah. that we <laughs> we have uh, certain things we really would like to go back to. And I have three questions I would like us to to talk about Sure. And that is, uh, but I want the, the last question to to be the first one to be answered. Number one question: How uh, how do we get well from cancer? How do we stay away from cancer? And how come that cancer goes away in one place and then comes back somewhere else? I'd like you to answer that one first. Okay, all powerful uh, questions. Uh, how to heal it and how to uh, prevent against it proactively. Uh, answer is pretty much the same in both cases, which is keep emotions flowing. All this political correctness, you know, the, the, when I see government trying to regulate hate speech, I go nuts because I'm thinking, who is drawing the line in the sand here? We are not all lawyers. We are not all, uh, you know, data uh, memory devices verbatim. So the fact that the window of gray is so wide that that kind of a legal concept is scaring everybody out of ever saying anything they think or feel under their breath, and energy and matter can't be created or destroyed, only transformed. So when somebody swallows their thoughts and feelings away, it doesn't disappear. It goes into their system. A tumor by thought-cause alignments is a long-standing hurt. So you have a transmutation. It's energy that starts out as thought, which is measurable and quantifiable on an EEG or a brainwave meter. So gets, cancer gets, can cause uh, uh, can be caused by emotions. Absolutely. Festival and actually, emotions. that's probably what it is: emotions. And, here, and here's the the key point: any emotion trapped inside will fester. Just go back to the laws of the universe that we trust as Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. If if you're in the woods and you, you're thirsty and you find a stream, you don't drink from the stagnant pool off to the side. The first thing any good woodsman knows, you go to the fastest moving water to get your drink. And it's the same thing in the body. And this gets into chakras and energy flows and, and uh, Reiki. And these are all technologies I I'm proud to be ignorant of. I wouldn't act like an expert in any of these things, but I can understand we're all singing from the same song sheet. The idea that anything tangled and knotted and festering is, is going to breed uh, a, 
a bad condition, a bad situation. A fisherman knows that if he leaves a knot in his fishing line, uh, that area of the line becomes weaker, quicker than the rest of the line. And so any raking master or energy healer understands that they're looking for trapped and festering tangled energies within the human psyche. So, so uh, we heard, stay away. So what? How do we stay away from? We do meditation. We we, jam, we well, dance. We <laughs> strangely almost the opposite. Well, uh, dead on with the dance. Almost opposite meditation. Meditation, to be honest with you, sort of scares me uh, because it's a, it, the best statistical alignment with philo- with health and philosophy I've ever heard. Says God Almighty is man fully alive. One has to explain why does one death row inmate quickly grow a tumor uh, or a cancer and die before his first appeal. And then the next person on death row turns out to be 90 years old, the life of the prison, the guards all know him, he'd never get paroled because he makes it clear that he's amoral and would kill again if he was ever left out on the street. But so but why is that? Because the... the um, the one person, the, we'll take the amoral one first, has no guilt. He is totally remorseless. He would be thrilled to do it again and taste the blood in the flesh of the next victim. Uh, and he lives. And he does it totally unabashed. The other person is the one who's a moral person, catches his wife uh, messing around with another guy in the heat of rage, kills somebody, and 24, 48 hours later sobers up and says, Oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah. And the guilt and the remorse kills them dead. Yeah, that's well, why, you know, one preacher lives to be 85 and passes peacefully in his sleep, pain free, and another dies young and wretched. Uh, so is, guilt is another form of emotion, of course, that it, will it could it, well, kill it's you. Well, the idea, any emotion, health comes from living life unabashed and to the fullest. That is the the best way I can ever put it, God Almighty is man fully alive. When I look in my office, the people who are sick, somebody has scared them or throttled their expressions uh, through some kind of political correctness, family culture, guilt, whatever, and they're harboring all that stuff inside. And here's the strange thing. Any emotion, I've said that several times, I want the world to catch on to that. I have seen joy trapped inside a woman killer oh really any emotion trapped can be deadly yeah well any that's emotion. like trapped water you know you yes. have to open it up it has you have to have a flow it's like your uh, oxygen molecule molecules they have to flow everything has to flow and that's the point about everything mm-hmm. that's why i always use that stream analogy who would drink from the the stagnant corner of the pond yeah. Any, any woodsman knows you take your drink from the fastest moving current you can find. Yes, that's what you learn out of nature. You yes. don't drink water from a little hole in the ground. It has to come blowing out exactly. <laughs> from the ground. So that's if, you know, if somebody's got a cancer and they want to relieve it, I always say the closest psychology ever came to a good idea was the early 80s when they got into primal release. Remember they had the, the, uh, release, the, yes. the little rubber batons, you know, the, those... Uh, foam uh, wands that you could beat on your kid or mother mm-hmm. and not hurt them. <laughs> and, yeah, and, so, uh, so release is a key word yeah, when you have cancer. Yeah, That's good to know. It might be over-franchised over time, and it might be oversimplified as a concept, but it's not, it's not a bad alternative if you have nothing else. Yeah, and no, so release. It's also in grief when you are, I see uh, those 100%. who have grief and they cannot release that grief. That kills right. them also. Exactly. You have to get rid of the emotions. And then we have this, uh, what I just mentioned before, when cancer reoccurs, and this is so common, you have breast cancer and everything is fine, and then you get it somewhere else and somewhere else, and you start to cut out body parts. Exactly. And this gets into, and that's why chronic illness is chronic illness. By definition, it's saying just the doctors, they're the ones who label it chronic, not the rest of us. Chronic illness is chronic because there's recurrence or substitution. And here's the deal, and this goes back to, you know, I'll try to make this quick, but uh, on my own bursitis story, when I had my radio show, I told that story. And I had MDs, uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons, I had four of them that day, call in live 
And after me telling my story, they said, you know, it's hard for me to admit this, but I got into medicine and became an orthopedic surgeon looking for my own answers. And to this day, I have struggled with a bursitic condition. And your explanation and discovery fits my life so completely that even though I'm afraid to say it as a professional, I had to call in and let you know that it makes perfect sense to me. Now, yeah. one of those uh, four actually booked a session, and it was, I, I don't promote one-session miracles, but it did only take me one session to heal this guy's lifetime of bursitis. And it was exactly the same sort of thing that I described, him you know, getting provoked into fights and, and then uh, through whatever extraneous energy is, you know, then talked out of it and had to swallow all his angers away. And I got in there and released all that crap and did the forgiveness, and, and the guy never suffered another bout of bursitis again. But while I had the, one of those orthopedic surgeons on the air, I asked him this question. And, and my point was the fact that when a doctor cuts out a tumor, oblivious to the calling for the self-mutilation, the skull-achieving subconscious doesn't say, hey, I quit. Uh, you, 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 you win, Doc. I'll, uh, I'll just go away. That subconscious goal-achieving mind says, hey, I'm still programmed to self-mutilate in here. I got news for you. I got another joint. I got another breast. I got a kidney. I got a liver. I got more organs to jump to than you've got medical coverage. Let's race. And the doctor ends up in this guaranteed loss of a checkers match with the most powerful goal-achieving agency known to man. So I asked the orthopedic surgeon, I said, look, I got you on the air. We've never talked before, right? And he said, no. I said, then don't patronize me. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But you're, the, you're down here in the Gold Coast of Florida and deal with a lot of older folks. You replace hips for, you know, replace a bad hip? He says, yes, most of what I do. I said, great. How yeah. many people come to you with two bad hips at the same time right out of the gate? And he says, practically never. I said, all right, work with me here. You replace a hip two months, six months, year, but sometimes shorter than random degradation that we would think of of a wear part. How many of them come back prematurely with a second bad hip or another bad joint? Now, I probably could have made my point if he said 30 or 40 percent. His answer staggered me, and I was the one setting them up. He says, almost all of them. This is incredible. Stephen, we have two minutes left. We can go over the time for the recording, but the live show would end in less than two minutes. Understood. Can you give us your, uh, your, uh, uh, the way how we can get hold of you? Sure. Uh, the website is uh, alfcentral.org, and that stands for Achievement and Learning Foundation, A-L-F, and then the word central, C-E-N-T-R-A-L, dot org. So it would be Uh And my phone number is 727-243-1720. Again, 727-243-1720. That's wonderful. And I believe, uh, Stephen, we will have another show, you and I, in, in a couple of weeks. If that's okay with you, because Absolutely. I feel we have only gone through one-third of what is the missing link in healing cancer. We haven't even come that yet, that far no, yet. Really, <laughs> an hour, and we barely scratched the surface, I agree. It is so true. So we have a lot more to say. So um, you can continue if there's anything to that story that you would like to add, Stephen. Well, just with you know the, the profound idea when you ask about the recurrence or substitution, this is why, as far as I'm concerned, I always say that you know, when it comes to doctors and westernized medicine, when it comes to trauma care, these folks rock. My gosh, if I break my arm skiing, I'm not going to sit in my chair and try to use some hypno-voodoo to get it healed. I'm going to the emergency room, and I'm going to have a qualified medical professional set that bone. But as much credit as I'm willing to give them in trauma care. Boy, can they put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, I think they should be offered, uh, uh, be the victims of restraining orders to be kept away from chronic illness because they yeah. have no clue. When chronic, chronic illness is chronic illness because there is a mind program for mutilation running 
And that subconscious goal-achieving mind, as I always characterize it, the single most powerful goal-achieving agency known to man, as long as that mind is programmed for some form of self-mutilation or self-limitation or is harboring some festering emotion, there isn't enough medical technology on earth to create the healing unless there's, it's accompanied by some close encounter of the fourth kind where a person, you know, near-death experiences are classic where a person drops their guilt, drops their shames, drops, drops their vendettas and realizes that the subtlety of life is more important than grudges. And then the medical community will take uh, credit for that healing as if it was the chemistry of the chemo that got the job done. And uh, I will fight that, and I would debate against uh, whoever they want to stack up against me, and I bet I win. Yeah. That's, it's, 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 it was a very powerful ending. Stephen, I thank you very, very much. The show is over. The live show is, is finished, but we are now on a recording, which will go for the archives. And as always, this show will be most visited in the archives. I thank you so very much, Stephen Parkhill, well, for being for with me today. It was, such, it was such a delight to have you call, and I was thrilled to do this. And uh, if you want to invite me back again, you have me. Yes, I would love to have you in in a couple of weeks. I will uh, make a a spot for you. (laughs) I get back with you. Thank you so very much, Stephen Parkin. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.